We're going to be in Revelation chapter 3 looking at verses 14 through 22. This morning we are, we're finishing our series that we've been in for the past few weeks. A series that's entitled The Seven Churches of Revelation. And we're going to be looking at the church in Laodicea. And so hopefully you've arrived. Revelation chapter 3 beginning in verse 14. I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's word as we read verses 14 through the end of the chapter. Hear, hear the word of the Lord. Write to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Thus says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. For you say I'm rich, I have become wealthy and need nothing, and you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed, and ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be zealous and repent. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone who hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. And to the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we listen to your words spoken to your people, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. I ask that you would give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word with clarity and truth to your people, for we are ready to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This morning, I want us to consider this idea of reclaiming our prophetic purpose, reclaiming our prophetic purpose. His name was Kevin Neff. Kevin Neff was an ordinary guy. Uh, He was a financial advisor, was working, was taking care of his family. And in 2007, he visited one of his clients who had been sick with a little virus. Nothing major, just seemed like a little cold. The client was better, some of the family members were sick, but he was their financial advisor, so he went to advise them on finances. A couple days later, he started feeling some sickness as well. He felt like he had a cold, a little bit of a sore throat, runny nose, cough, didn't think much of it. But as time progressed, it didn't get better. And a few weeks later, he awoke one morning to the starting, startling realization that he could no longer speak, thinking it was just normal, lost his voice, would come back in a couple days, he didn't think much of it, but as a week went by and he couldn't utter a sound, he knew there was a problem. And so he went to a doctor and they diagnosed him with something that's too hard for me to pronounce, so I'm not going to try 
but basically his vocal cords had seized up and were no longer functional. And so Kevin Neff, though he could hear, could no longer speak, and it started to change everything in his life. It was difficult to be a financial advisor with clients who didn't have the time nor the patience to sit with you while you wrote everything out on a whiteboard to try to communicate. It got so difficult in his life that his marriage began to fall apart and he ended up divorcing his wife. He was left with almost nothing because he couldn't speak. And so he knew he had to try to figure life out. So he decided to go back to school. He was going to pursue a different career path. He actually got a job in the student center at the Welcome Center to be the first person to greet people using a computerized voice to speak. And he joked that sometimes he liked to change the voice and use female voices to throw people off. And so he had just relegated his life to a life that was lived in silence. He had lost his voice and no doctor was able to help him. And then three and a half years later, his now ex-wife sent him an email and said to him, hey, there's this doctor in Cleveland who has had some success in cases like this, helping people get their voice back. He didn't think much of it. He'd pretty much given up hope. But he said, why not? I'll check it out. And so he traveled to this doctor. And this doctor started using phrases that he'd heard before, giving diagnoses that he'd heard before, the same old things. And so in his mind, Kevin had already come to the conclusion that this doctor was going to say that there was nothing left. He was saying all the same things that all the other doctors had said. And then to his surprise, towards the end of the conversation, the doctor looked at him and said, all of this stuff is going on, but we can fix it. And so then Kevin started a long and somewhat painful process of loosening those vocal cords, of breaking them free. He recounts that it was so painful that at one point, after he had gotten glimmers of hopes because he started making sounds and he could make the M sound, and he had never been able to make a sound in these past three and a half years, that at one point in the doctor's office, the doctor literally grabbed his larynx and said, this is going to be uncomfortable, and started squeezing and shaking it in his throat to try to loosen it up. He said it was a pain like he had never felt. But after three and a half years of being silent, The doctor told him, you need to strengthen your voice. He opened the window and he told him to yell at the man walking across the street. Didn't matter what he said, just yell at him. Kevin was so afraid of what would come out of his mouth, but he knew he had to give it a shot. And to his surprise, he screamed and his voice came out. A little different, a little higher pitch, took a little bit more work to get it to where it was. But he regained his voice. It's a troubling thing to lose your voice. And the reason that I tell you that story is because I'm convinced. I've said it before in this series, but I'm even more convinced. The church has lost its prophetic voice. If ever there was a letter that summed up the American church, it is the church to the letter in Laodicea. And I, I've got to be somewhat honest with you. This message, it seems that, that as we've gone through the churches to some degree, they've gotten a little bit worse. And so, so we're ending on a hard word. And, and I want to be honest, it is a tough word this morning. There's a part of me this week that wanted to remove some of the challenges. I believe there's hope and encouragement in the midst of it, but it is a challenging word. And the more I tried to kind of soften it and, and, and make it easier to digest, the more I realized that if I do that, I'm going to be failing as your shepherd. So I'm just going to let it be hard and trust that the Spirit works. And so we're introduced to the church in Laodicea. And once again, 
In the very first verse, in verse 14, we're introduced to both the one who is speaking and the one to whom the letter is directed. And so Revelation 3.14 says, Write to the angel of the church in Laodicea, thus says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. The text tells us that the church is in Laodicea. Now Laodicea is actually a very interesting church. It's an interesting city. Let me give you a little bit of background. Some more will get unpacked throughout the sermon. But Laodicea is actually located very close, very close to the church in Colossae. You know, the book of Colossians, Paul wrote that letter. That's the church in Colossae. And it's argued that the church in Laodicea was so close in proximity to the church in Colossae that the same issues that the church in Colossae were facing that Paul was writing about in the book of Colossians, they're the same issues that were facing the church in Laodicea. And the text in Colossians actually seems to support this. It appears that both churches were established by the preaching of the same man, a man named Epaphras. We see this in Colossians 1 verse 7 where he says to the church in Colossae, you learn from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. But then in Colossians 4 verses 12 through 13, it says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, sends you greeting. He is always wrestling for you in his prayers so that you may stand mature and fully assured in everything God wills. Listen to this. He says, for I testify about him that he works hard for you. You, for those in Laodicea and for those in, Hi, in Hi, sorry, Hierapolis. Now those two cities, Colossae and Hierapolis, are very important. They're going to come up in again, again, so hold on to them. But the letter of Colossians, in fact, was not meant just for the church in Colossae. It was actually meant for the church in Laodicea as well. Because in Colossians 4.16, Paul says, After this letter has been read at your gathering, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So basically, Paul wrote two letters. He wrote one to Colossians, which God had ordained to be Scripture, but he also wrote one to the church in Laodicea, and we don't have that letter, but Paul was assuming that the church written to the Colossians would be read in Laodicea, and the church that was written to Laodicea would be read to the church in Colossae. So they're very close in proximity. But the city was actually known for three things. It was a very wealthy city, Laodicea. Laodicea was known for their banking. They had one of the most sophisticated systems of banking in the ancient world. And so people with money kept their money in Laodicea. But they were also famous for their black wool. They made expensive garments, garments that the everyday person couldn't afford, but garments that brought in incredible wealth to the city. But they were also significant for their medical developments. Now, we know that Thyatira was the medical capital of the ancient Near East, but but Laodicea was significant in medicine, but in one particular area of medicine. They had created and manufactured an effective ointment for eyes. So by and large, again, Laodicea was a prosperous city. It was so prosperous, in fact, that there was an earthquake that destroyed a lot of those cities in that area in 60 A.D., and so the Roman government came in and offered financial assistance to all of these cities to rebuild. And the Roman historian Tacitus, who lived during that time, is quoted as saying that the city of Laodicea, without any relief from us, recovered itself purely by its own resources. So the Roman government comes in and says, your city was destroyed, we're going to help you rebuild it. And the city was so wealthy, it said, we don't need your money, we got this, we'll pay for it and we'll still have our money left over. We'll be fine. 
The city was wealthy. It relied on itself. But the danger appears to be, as we will soon see, that the city that relied on itself was home to a church that relied on itself. But we're also introduced in verse 14, not just to the church, but to the one who is speaking. The one who is communicating to John as he writes this letter to the church. And again, we note something interesting. For the first time in all of the letters, Jesus uses a description of himself that wasn't in the first chapter. Because you remember what we've seen is that in chapter 1 of Revelation, there's this long description of who Jesus is, this beautiful description. And at the beginning of each of the letters, he's pulled different parts of that description to speak to a specific church. And there was always a reason behind it. But here, to the church in Laodicea, Jesus doesn't use that description. He writes his own. And Jesus says that these are his words, the words of the Amen. The faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. And so... We've seen before that Jesus always picks his description for a reason. And so what is Jesus getting at when he says that he is, that these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation? Well, let's break it down because it really does paint a beautiful picture of Jesus. He begins and says that he is the amen. Now we know that amen in Hebrew can be translated as so be it or let it be. So when we pray, we're we're, we're praising God we're we're asking for God we're interceding for other people and we finish and we say amen because we're asking for God to let it be let it happen and so Jesus is reminding them by saying that I am the amen that he is not only the one who speaks but Jesus is the one who supplies the power to what he speaks Jesus has never needed anybody to help him accomplish what he says I mean, we got to think about this. Jesus is something else. When kings make decrees, they need officials to carry it out. When rulers make decisions, they need governments to see it through. When Congress passes laws, they need a president to sign it into law. But Jesus, Jesus is the power behind his own proclamation. When he speaks, amen, let it be. 2 Corinthians 1.20 reminds us, for every one of God's promises is yes in him. Therefore, through him we say amen to the glory of God. Jesus is the amen. I love that. Jesus is the power to his own proclamation. But then Jesus says that he is the faithful and true witness. Here Jesus is speaking to his character. Not only is he the power behind his own proclamation, but Jesus' proclamation is always faithful and true. When he speaks, it is so. He never embellishes. He never uses idle words. He never deceives. Let me, let me try to explain it like this. This is a, a confession of sorts. You know what they say, right? Confession is good for the soul, bad for the reputation. So it is what it is. This is my confession. I admit that, that as a, a parent... Um, there have been times when I have embellished the truth to get my kids to do things that I want them to do. I'll give you an example. Some, some of you have been to our house. You know that we have this, um, this concrete kind of walkway. You walk up the stairs, your little concrete porch right there. The bottom part of it is pure concrete. The top part of it's got some bricks there. Well, where the bricks meet the concrete, it's starting to chip away, and there are pieces in there. And one of my children, who will rena- name, uh, remain nameless, tends to always like to go and like dig at that crack, like pull it out. 
And I know she's just making my job harder whenever I get around to actually trying to fix this thing. And so she was out there pulling the stone out. And I was saying, I said, baby, I I need you to quit pulling the stone out. And she asked the question that many inquisitive children ask. She said, well, well, why? Now, I didn't tell her because you're making my job harder. I, I needed her to stop. So I said, well, baby, our house is made of stone. And if you pull that stone out, the whole thing's going to fall down. <laughs> do, do you like your house? Well, then don't, don't, don't pull it down. Now, in, in theory, it's true. <laughs> Again, confession, good for the soul, bad for the reputation. Another one of my children who shall remain nameless like her father isn't a big fan of vegetables. So we've sat at the table and I said, baby, I need you to eat your vegetables. And like an inquisitive child, they say, why? And I didn't say because mommy worked hard and you need to eat it. I didn't say because we're blessed to have food. I said, well, if you don't eat vegetables, your bones will stop working and you, you won't be able to walk. You want to walk, don't you? Yeah, I want to walk. And she ate it. I admit to you that there have been times where I have been embellished. I know y'all so holy. You're like, those aren't embellishment, Michael. Those are lies. And the Lord and I will deal with that. But here's what I'm getting at. When Jesus says that he is a faithful and true, he's saying, yeah, that, that ain't me. I've never embellished, I've never lied, I've never made idle threats to try to get you to do what I want you to do. When I speak, it is always true, it is always trustworthy, and you can take it to the bank. And the last introduction that he uses to the church, he says, not only am I the amen, not only am I faithful and true, you can trust my words, but he says, I am the beginning of God's creation. Now we have to understand, Jesus is not talking when he says beginning, he's not talking chronologically, he's talking authoritatively. The word translated there is arche, and it means beginning or the originator or the ruler. Jesus is speaking not about his chronology, not that he existed before creation, though he did. He is speaking about the fact that he is the beginning. He is the one who rules creation. He has authority over creation. He is the supreme head of creation. So put all of that together, right? So, so this is someone who not only has the power to speak, not only the character to speak, but this is the person who has the right to speak. And this teaches us something about Jesus. Now, now I don't want you to miss this. For those of us who have trusted in Jesus, this introduction of Jesus by Jesus should bring us great joy. The fact that Jesus possesses the power to fulfill his own proclamation, a character of integrity and righteousness and the authority over a creation to bring about that which he says, that should provide hope to us because it means that Jesus won't fail when he speaks. That means that if you walked in here this morning brokenhearted, when Jesus declares that I am near to the brokenhearted, he has the power, the perfection, and the position to fulfill that promise. If you walked in here this morning burdened, when Jesus declares, cast your cares on me for I care for you, he has the power, the perfection, and the position to carry those burdens for you. If you walked in here this morning feeling crushed by the weight of your sin, when Jesus declares, if you confess your sins, I am faithful and just to forgive you of your trespasses and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, he has the power, the perfection, and the position to forgive your sins. All of God's promises find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. But know this. That while this description of Jesus is a measurable hope for those in Christ Jesus, 
it is also a terror for those without him. And we see this in Jesus' response to the church because we begin to understand that Jesus isn't speaking this to the church in Laodicea because they're being faithful and going through some hard times. He, he isn't speaking to them because they're striving for holiness and they just need a little help. No, no, no. Jesus is speaking to the church in Laodicea with these words because he needs them to understand the terror that comes with them. We begin to understand that something is tragically wrong when we look at verses 15 and 16. Jesus says this, I know your works. I'm not going to belabor it, but here is another church where there is no commendation. There is no, you've gotten some things right. He says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. And I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. Now to understand the significance of this statement as it would have been understood by the Laodiceans, we have to learn a little bit more about Laodicea. I mentioned to you early the significance of Hierapolis and Colossae and the fact that Laodicea was close to both of them. Laodicea was in between those two cities. They were close to each other. Remember the cities where Epaphras taught. And Colossae, though, was known for its cold springs of water that flowed into the city. So the water that came to Colossae was ice cold from cold springs. But in Hierapolis, they were fed through an aqueduct that was hot springs. So in Colossae, you have ice cold water, and in Hierapolis, you have hot water. And both served a purpose. The cold water was used for refreshing and the hot water was used in medicine for healing. And so the people in Laodicea would use both of those springs to get water. They would travel to the cities, get their water and come back. The problem though was that by the time they traveled there and back, the water would be lukewarm. The cold water had warmed up on the journey back and the hot water had cooled off. And so they get to their city and all that they have left is lukewarm water. And in the ancient world, lukewarm water wasn't good for anything. In fact, lukewarm water was used in a metric to make people vomit. So this is a picture that they would have understood when he says you're not hot or cold, you're just lukewarm. And he's saying... You aren't either one of those things. You're just in the middle. And in essence, Jesus is saying, what use do you have? And he goes so far as to say that because you are lukewarm, you're not hot or cold. I will spit you out of my mouth or I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, we have to sit with the weight of that statement for just a moment. I mean, Jesus is basically saying, pick one. I don't care which one, be hot or be cold. And in this sense, he's using the water as an illustration, but, but, but he's talking about a spiritual reality. He's saying, I, w- I would rather you be on fire for me or that you just be completely against me, but pick one. Don't be lukewarm, be one or the, the other, be for me or against me. But he's saying the worst place that you can be is in the middle. And this is where we got to sit with the weight of it. You might be thinking, well, hold on. You're telling me it's better to just flat out reject, reject Jesus than to say you are a Christian, but to live like you're not? And the answer is yes. I mean, Peter says in 2 Peter 2.21, for it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy command delivered to them. 
That is a weighty statement. It would have been better that they didn't even know about Jesus and his righteousness than to hear about him, but to turn away from the commands he's placed on your life. I appreciate what Leon Moore says, what he wrote in his commentary when he said that to prefer a rejection of the faith to the way that the Laodiceans professed it is startling to say the least. But to profess Christianity while remaining untouched by its fire is a disaster. There is, he says there is more hope for the openly antagonistic than for the coolly indifferent. There is no one farther from the truth of Christ than the one who makes an idle profession without real faith. Their coolness was a denial of all that Christ stood for. That is weighty, church. Again, we have to sit with it. You do realize that from this text, it is not the lost world that makes Jesus sick. It's not the rebellious world acting like the rebellious world. If anything, we see a picture of Jesus where that breaks his heart. It spurs compassion on in him. That doesn't make him sick. What makes him sick, according to Revelation 3, is the lukewarm church. The church that is neither hot nor cold. It's the church that wants to simultaneously appease the world and try to appease Jesus at the same time. It's the church that wants to play the middle. It's the church that's lost its prophetic voice. They're not refreshing. They're not healing. They're just there. But it's interesting because this also gives us an example of how we should view the world. We live in a depraved world. We know that things are broken in this world. We th see things falling apart all around us. We see the depravity when it comes to money and the poverty in this world. We see depravity when it comes to the sexual ethic of this world. We see sin and struggle in homes and broken families. But none of that seems to make Jesus sick. Does it make us sick? Are we more sickened by sin or by the church that's just there? And if I'm honest, and I said this was a hard message, I'm afraid that Jesus would look at much of the church of America today and say, I wish you were either hot or cold. But this leads us to an important question that we have to answer. Something that Jesus wants to see because he addresses it directly. The question is, why were they stagnant? How does a church get to this place where they are neither hot nor cold? They're just there. Look at what Jesus says in verse 17. He says, for you say, I'm rich. I have become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You remember how I mentioned that Laodicea was a wealthy city. And they relied on their wealth. They didn't need outside help. And based on this statement by Jesus, the church was no different from the city in which they dwelt. They judged their standing and their health based on earthly values. They had money, they had riches, and they believed because of all of that, they had everything they needed. 
But compare this with the church in Smyrna that we saw a few weeks ago in Revelation 2.9. Do you remember that? Where Jesus says, I know your affliction and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. You see, we're reminded here, and this is important. I know I say it frequently, but, but we got to get it, that Jesus does not evaluate the wealth and the health of his children and his church the way that the world evaluates wealth and health. He doesn't evaluate wealth the way that we evaluate wealth. I know your affliction and your poverty, but you are rich. Jesus does not evaluate prestige the way that we evaluate prestige. He says, for he who is least among you is the one who is great. Jesus doesn't evaluate influence the way that the world evaluates influence. Because Jesus says, lead a tranquil and a quiet life in all godliness and dignity. It is a dangerous thing when the church evaluates its faithfulness and health by worldly standards. It's a dangerous thing when you start evaluating your health and faithfulness by earthly standards. Please hear me. The position that you hold in your job is not an indicator of your faithfulness. The amount of money that you have in your bank account, whether it's great or small, is not an indicator of your faithfulness. Your physical health is not an indicator of your faithfulness. Your platform and the amount of followers that you have on your social network is not an indicator of your faithfulness. Your political party is not an indicator of your faithfulness. The one thing that determines your faithfulness is whether or not you are totally dependent on Jesus. Not just when it's convenient, not just when it's uncontroversial, not just when you feel like it's saint. I'm trying to tell you that there will never come a moment in your life where you will not need to depend on Jesus. And any time you come to a decision, you come to a season in life, you come to an experience where you think you can make it through without Jesus, you need to reevaluate. We need Jesus and that's what Jesus is telling the church in Laodicea. You think you're wealthy. You think that you're, you're good, that you have everything that you need, but you don't have it. Jesus is saying you need me, and we know it because of what he says next in verse 18. He says, for I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed in your shameful nakedness, uh, not be exposed, an ointment to spread on your eyes so that you might see. And here, Jesus, I love Jesus. Like He doesn't beat around the bush. He intentionally goes after the faulty thinking plaguing this church because they thought they were good because they had money and riches. Remember, Laodicea had the most robust banking system of anyone in the ancient world. And Jesus says, listen, you need a different kind of riches. Not the kind that comes from storing up in banks, not the riches that comes because you've, you've worked hard and, and earned a wage. He says, no, you need the riches that come with a faith refined by fire. As Peter says, a faith that is tested, a faith more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, a faith that will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying, listen, church, you want to be rich Go through some hardships that come because you've trusted in me. Stand firm and watch your faith flourish on the other side. That's where riches is found. But then Jesus says, you need to buy white clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed. And here he goes after their wool industry. 
He says, you think you're good because you can cover yourself with the finer things of this world. You can wrap yourself in expensive wool. But Jesus says, I've never been impressed with man-made attempts to make themselves look better. We should know that Adam and Eve tried it in the garden and it didn't work for them. After they sinned, they thought they could cover their shame and cover their nakedness. And they wrapped fig leaves around them. They covered themselves and it wasn't sufficient because Jesus had to cover them with the blood of an animal. And Jesus says, you need something else to clothe yourself. What you need is white clothes. In other words, you need to be clothed in righteousness. Because we know in Revelation that the white clothes is a picture, an illustration of of Christ's righteousness. He says, you don't need to be covered in wool of this world. You need my righteousness. But then he goes after their medical industry that they put so much stock in. Again, Laodiceans were known in the ancient Near East for their effective eye stuff. They were so convinced that they had the treatment to help people see. And Jesus says, you're blind and you don't even know it. You need to buy from me an ointment so that you can see, not with physical eyes, but with spiritual sight. Jesus is reminding them that you are looking at the world with earthly eyes and what you need is for me to open your eyes so that you can see what you are missing. Jesus is telling the church, you need to understand that I am not impressed with worldly goods and riches. I'm not impressed with with earthly prestige and recognition. Jesus is reminding them of Psalm 51, 17, that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. And I want you to see this. This isn't just Jesus telling them what they got wrong. This is important. Because if we miss this, we just see Jesus as being mean. And he's not being mean. Please understand that. Jesus is not a mean God. This is not him just telling them what they got wrong. It is Jesus inviting them to get it right. Because look at verses 19 and 20. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. See, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Again, I don't want you to miss this. Jesus' words to the church in sin are not spoken to them out of anger and hatred. Jesus does not hate the Laodiceans. He doesn't hate them. He loves them. And the words that he speaks are spoken out of love. And he's trying to remind them that he loves them. Because he loves them, he rebukes them and disciplines them. And this is a truth that the church in America has to recapture. Christ's love for us is not a one-time love, meaning it was, it was a love shown on the cross never to be seen again. It's not that kind of a love. Jesus' love for us is not a passive love, meaning he loves from a distance and tries to let us figure it out, but just kind of sends us some nice things every once in a while. Christ's love is an active love, and part of that love is discipline. Hear what I'm trying to tell you. God will rebuke us. God will correct us and God will discipline us, but it is not because he is against us. It is because he is for us. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 reminds us, do not despise the Lord's instruction, my son, and do not loathe his discipline. Here it is, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Just as a father disciplines the son in whom he 
delights. One commentator says this about that passage in Proverbs 3. He says, the linking of discipline with love is difficult to grasp, but it is basic to a right understanding of the Lord's dealing with his people. And then he says, chastisement or discipline that springs from love cannot be vindictive, but it must always be beneficial. Especially is this so in the true father and son relationship. He says the Old Testament passage is setting out a profound view of love, a love which does not hesitate to correct us. So let me sum up what he's saying there. If God loves you and you are his, he will correct you. He will discipline you. But the problem for many of us, and I know I'm harping on it, but many of us in the American church, because of our idea of selfhood and how we view the individual and this rugged individualism that plagues our society, is we want a Jesus that will save us and then let us do whatever we want to do. We want a Jesus that has no claim on our moral decisions. We want a Jesus that has no claim on our sexuality. We want a Jesus that has no claim on our comfort. A Jesus that has no claim on our family. A Jesus that has no claim on our free time. We want Jesus without the relationship, without the discipline. But what we have to understand is that God's discipline proves that we are His. It is God loving us and refusing to leave us where we are. The Bible tells us in Romans 8.29 that for those he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. How do you think that conforming takes place? It's not easy because we naturally don't look like Jesus. And Jesus has to, to cut away and correct some things in our life and in our thinking and even in our practice. And it hurts sometimes. It's not pleasant. No one likes discipline. But good discipline will always show the love of a parent. I know this to be true. I've seen it. I try to model it for my kids. Listen, when I was a kid growing up, you... This might be hard for you to believe, but I got some whoopings. I did. I made some poor life choices. And I didn't understand it in the moment. I didn't understand why, why I was being disciplined. But I can look back now as a 35-year-old man, and I remember some of the lessons that were taught to me through discipline. And it was that discipline that made me conform more to the image of Christ. And if a good earthly father will do that, how much more will the father of all fathers do that? And if we despise the discipline of the Lord, we are despising his very love. But that should cause us to pause for a minute and ask the question, am I experiencing the discipline of the Lord? Because if we are not experiencing the discipline of the Lord, it might tell us something about our standing with him. I need you to understand that not every hardship you face in your life is because Satan's out to get you. Not every hardship in your life is because you made a stupid mistake. Now, sometimes we make stupid mistakes, and sometimes Satan's out to get us, but sometimes the trouble that you are in and the hardship that you are facing and the toil and the struggle is not because some outside force is working against you. It's because God is disciplining you, and sometimes your prayers to get out of that season aren't being answered because God put you in that season, and he needs you in that season because he loves you. And he is doing something that needs to be done that only he can do. Do not despise the discipline of the Lord. 
and being conformed into the image of his son is painful. But the reward of that discipline is that we get Jesus. I mean, that's what he says there in verse 20. He says, see, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So Jesus looks at this church in Laodicea. That's not hot, that's not cold, that's lukewarm. And he says, listen, you're about to be vomited out of my mouth. But it's not final yet, and we know that here because Jesus gives them an opportunity to repent. He says, listen, you've dropped the ball. You have failed to be what I called you to be. You have lost your prophetic presence and, vo- and purpose and voice. But I am right here willing to dwell with you. And the beauty of verse 20 And it's so beautiful to me is that Jesus doesn't abandon them when they get it wrong. Can we just praise God for a minute that Jesus doesn't abandon us when we get it wrong? Like if that is not good news to you, I got nothing for you. Like he doesn't leave us when when we get it wrong because if we're honest, many of us have gotten it wrong before we even walked into this place this morning. We're coming to worship, Right? like angry at something that's not worth being angry over, like mad at our kids in a, in a not God-honoring way, like, like our spouse said something to us that just irritated us and like we're plotting how we're going to say something back after church. Like some of y'all right now are more concerned about lunch than you are about this time with the Word of God. Some of y'all forgot about our members meeting. But praise God that Jesus doesn't abandon us when we get around. I said it this morning, the reason you didn't wake up in hell this morning is not because you're so good at this faith thing. It's because even when we get it wrong, for those who are in Christ Jesus, he will never let us go. You might run as hard as you can from Jesus, but if you are his, he will never let you go. And he doesn't let the church in Laodicea go. And that is such an encouragement to me because maybe I'm not trying to imply which of these churches new breed is. Maybe that's a work that you have to do with the Spirit. And I'm going to ask you to do that here in a minute. I don't, I don't know where you are. I'm not trying to imply where we are. But it gives me great hope that even when this church gets it wrong, Jesus is not going to be done with us. But I don't want you to misunderstand Jesus' invitation. Because Jesus' invitation to go in with them and to eat with them and for them to eat with him, it is an exclusive invitation. Jesus is saying, I'm here at the door knocking and you can choose to open the door. But to open the door means to walk away from the world. And he is saying you can either have me or you can have this world, but you cannot have both. And please understand that trying to live like you can have both is choosing the world. And so Jesus invites the church into repentance. He invites them back into fellowship with with him. He invites them to regain their prophetic purpose, to be in the world and to not be of the world. And and church, the temptation is so great for you and I. It is so easy to try to live with one foot in the world and one foot in the church. But the thing that we have to reckon with is that you and I were never meant to be a part of this world. 
Jesus says, you are in this world, but you are not of this world. Like, we are passing through. We are sojourners and exiles, but the reason that we are here is to be the prophetic voice of God to a people that needs to hear it. I, I blew my salt and light illustration a couple weeks ago. It would have been great right here, right? But to be salt and light in the world, to preserve this world, to shine in the midst of a darkness. We are God's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We are here with a prophetic purpose. And if we lose that purpose because we've tried to blend in in the world, we are lukewarm and what good are we? Like you and I were not meant to blend in. We weren't. We weren't meant to look like everybody else and to sound like everybody else. We weren't meant to talk like everybody else. We weren't meant to tweet like everybody else. We weren't meant to post like everybody else. We are meant to stick out like a sore thumb because we don't belong here, but that's okay because where we belong is so much better. And you see, and then in verses 21 and 22, Jesus does what, he's, what we've seen him do in every letter so far. He speaks beyond the specific church and he speaks to everyone, including you and me, who would read these words. And he says, to the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. I will give the right to sit with me on, on my throne. He says, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus understands that living in this world and refusing to be a part of the world is a dogfight. And so he says to the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes, to the one who faithfully fights till the end, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. I was going to unpack that for you. I don't even know how to unpack that. Like, I don't know what to do with that. But Jesus is inviting us to sit on his throne, a throne that he won by his blood and his sacrifice when he conquered the grave and walked out of the tomb. We didn't deserve it. We can't obtain it. And he says, come, sit with me. Like, I want that. And if it means I lose this world, so be it. But did you catch what he threw in there after that? Because it's so amazing. He says, to the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit on my throne. And he says, just as I have conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Here's why this is so significant. You and I don't have the ability to conquer on our own. Like, the, the quicker we learn that, the better we'll be. You and I are not strong enough to be in this world and, of this, and not of this world. Like, we're not that good. Like, let's be honest. The world is still enticing to me. Like, there are things I see out there. It's like, man, I really want that more than I want Jesus. I might not say it like that, but I act like that. Like, I'm not strong enough. But the beauty of what Jesus is saying is, you don't have to be. Because I, I am. I'm strong enough. Jesus says, I've already conquered. I'm asking you to do something that I've already done. I mean, remember how Jesus introduces himself to the church. He is the amen. He is the power to his own proclamation. He is the faithful one. He is the true one. He is the ruler of creation. And the fact that he is sitting on the throne of God testifies that he is a conquering king because you only sit down when the job is done. And we know how he conquered. Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 10, 
Verses 10 through 12. By, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. I love this. Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time which can never take away sin. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down at the right hand of God. Like, we're going to do, do Easter again this morning, okay? Jesus conquered because the grave is empty. And through his death and resurrection, he has overcome this world. He has overcome sin. He has overcome the powers of hell. Like, that's our hope. We didn't do that. Our sin separates us from Jesus. The only hope we have of overcoming is Christ, the conquering king. And because he conquered, if if we are united to him in faith, we too can conquer. But even more, Jesus invites us to share in his reward. You didn't earn the throne. Like how amazing is Jesus? You can sit with me on my throne. Come, rest. Rest. You have overcome this world. He will give us the right to sit with him on his throne. As we bring this series to a close, let me me offer this final thought to you. Throughout these two chapters, we've been introduced to seven different churches. And as I've studied them, I've seen that some get it right Some get it wrong and some are doing both. And a few weeks ago, I mentioned to you that every church that has ever existed or will exist will likely have the testimony, a testimony similar to one of these churches. Some will get it right. Some will get it wrong. But most churches will be a combination of both. But regardless of which church we are, one thing that is consistent in every letter is an invitation to conquer. And it's not a conquering that will come by our own strength. It's not a conquering that will come about because we outwitted the world, out-argued the world, and out-rationalized the world. It is a conquering that is extended to us because Jesus conquered. It is a conquering that will be ours if we hold fast to the one who has overcome on our behalf. And if we conquer, Jesus has consistently revealed the reward. It's been the right to eat of the tree of life. It's been the crown of life and safety from the second death. It's been the hidden manna and the white stone and a new name. It's been authority over the nations. It's been robes of righteousness and eternal security. It's been been being a pillar in the temple of God with an eternal dwelling in the new Jerusalem. It is the right to sit on the throne of God with our conquering king. And in all of these promises, what Jesus is declaring is that faithfulness will reap a reward greater than any the world has to offer and church the question that we have to answer is do we genuinely believe that what Jesus offers is better than what the world promises and so let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the spirit says to the churches let's pray together God, I thank you for your patience. 
that you are a better God than we could ever be. Because God, I know how I know how fickle I can be with people when they offend me over such little things. And God, we have infinitely offended you more than anyone could ever offend us. And yet, you are kind and patient and gracious. Lord, you have made it clear in these letters to the churches that living for you will not always be the easiest thing in this world. It will force us to live lives that are honestly countercultural to the way that our world lives. But you have consistently promised that what you offer is better. And my prayer is that we would believe you. Not just believe that what you have is better, but believe that you are strong enough, you are faithful enough, you have a proven record to show that you will deliver on what you promise. God, I pray that we, New Breed, would be a church that never loses its prophetic purpose. That we would be a voice crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Give us grace and endurance. Give us encouragement and friendship that we might run this race together to make much of your great name because you and you alone are worthy. And it's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.